Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 50. Episode 50? So, like our, uh, you know, we have a, a, a pearl anniversary and a gold anniversary, and what is an Episode 50 anniversary? What, what do you give to your favorite podcaster on their Episode 50? Uh, I, I have no idea. It, it, it's, it's probably the Haystack anniversary. I don't even know what that means. But it is Episode 50. It's brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of Spiritual Grit, released about six or seven months ago. Uh, there's two uh, 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 short and sweet devotion books tied to that book, Spiritual Grit, by the way. One is for adults and one's for teenagers. The adult one is a little hardback, and the teenager one is a soft cover. If you're looking for something to give either the teenager in your life or another adult in your life, something that could really uh, last a long time in their spiritual journey, that, that's something they can reference for weeks and weeks and weeks to come, um, there's, a, there's a few things right there that, that would be great for gift-giving. A copy of Spiritual Grit and, and or one of those little devotionals. Uh, we'll have a link to all of those on the... Uh, podcast page for this episode, Season 3, Episode 50. I'm also editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, and uh, speaking of great Christmas gifts, there you have it. If you know someone in your life who either loves to read the Bible or has never really uh, established a habit pattern of that in their life, either way, this Jesus-Centered Bible is a fantastic way to hook them into the story, the narrative of the Bible, and that's what really this Bible does. It it puts everything under the narrative umbrella of the Messiah, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. Everything points back to Jesus. And uh, if if you are thinking about a really meaningful and important and, and long lasting gift for someone in your life, there you go. We'll put a link to the Jesus Centered Bible on there too. There's lots comes in lots of different colors, by the way. Mine is a charcoal, yeah, but today I have with me, I think it's called cranberry, but it looks like the red of the Bible I got. My very first Bible was a red Bible when I was in Sunday school when I was a kid, so this one reminds me of that. So we are in the second episode of a month-long pursuit of the heart of Advent, and Advent really is the on-ramp to the greatest thing that's ever happened, which is Jesus born in a stable in Bethlehem, well, really light penetrating into the darkness, hope penetrating into hopelessness. Uh, Advent is the on-ramp into that, and our goal is not really, again, to prepare ourselves for the birth of Jesus, because breaking news, that's already happened. The birth of Jesus has happened, so when people in church talk about we're preparing ourselves for the birth of Jesus, that's not really true. What we're preparing ourselves is for the celebration of his birth. And it's, it's kind of like, um, well, if you think about um, the Super Bowl and all the hype leading up to the Super Bowl, my wife hates all the hype, by the way. She's not a huge fan of the game either. <laughs> but the hype leading up to it seems 
you know, long and drawn out. And it is. It's Every year it seems to get longer. Well, that hype is the on-ramp into the big game. And you could say Advent is the on-ramp into the big event. It's to prepare for something really huge. And, the, and, and to prepare, it means to get ready to, to celebrate, to kind of understand why the thing you're celebrating is so big. So if you think about the birth of Jesus as the message of Christmas, well, what is the medium of that message? I, I don't mean like the angels trumpeting his birth. I mean, what are all the trappings of that season? That's kind of what Advent is trying to do. It's trying to provide context for the message of Christmas, but uh, obviously this season has collected a lot more uh, context than simply the birth of Jesus and what it means to us. So what, what is that context communicating to us? I mean, this is kind of the most immersive season of the year, isn't it? We're surrounded and inundated with messages and experiences and traditions that are really forming how we experience the season. And for a lot of people, they say that this is their favorite season of the year, and that may or may not have anything whatever to do with Advent and the birth of Jesus. Uh, Christmas has sort of morphed into something that could be separated away from Advent. And the, the things that we're immersed in, the, th- the, the things that we're inundated with around this time, those things are f- kind of forming us, not just the things that we think about, but they're forming our emotional reality around this time. So, for example, Christmas as a celebration actually has its roots in a, in a pagan holiday. A lot of what we celebrate today as part of the Christmas season really has closer roots to the pagan winter holiday of the past. It kind of has taken on a flavor of its own, and I I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, you know, if I had to try to capture what the Christmas season has become, I think it's best captured by, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a, a secular holiday that celebrates family and winterness. <laughs> I was trying to capture all of the feeling that, it, that, that you get just around this time, the, the messages that you see on TV, the theme of the music that we listen to, and, the, and what people talk about at the gatherings we go to. So it's, it's a secular holiday that celebrates family and winterness. For a lot of people, that's all it is. But Advent, on the other hand, is a Latin word. Uh, the root of, of the word Advent is in a, in a Latin word for coming, C-O-M-I-N-G. So Advent means something's coming. And like before, what I, what I talked about with the, the Super Bowl, you know, when you turn on the TV at 8 in the morning— on Super Bowl Sunday, and the game's at four in the afternoon, and at eight in the morning, you're getting um, all of the hype and detail of what is about to happen eight hours from then. That is an on-ramp into something big, and and uh, so Advent is Latin for something coming, something big is coming. But I, I think in some ways we have a like a Trojan horse situation here. So we roll the Christmas, Christ, the Christmas season sort of inside our gates— <laughs> because it's our favorite time of the year, and out of its belly comes pouring all kinds of trappings of that season. So some of what comes pouring out is is sort of supportive of the focus of Advent, but a lot of it only has a bare connection. 
So what we have here are two different things that are going on at the same time, and they kind of intertwine and sometimes separate. The two things are the Christmas season and Advent, and there is overlap, like I mentioned, but not always. So since the medium is the message, and that's what Marshall McLuhan said, the great, the great philosophical thinker of the 20th century, he said the medium is the message. What he means by that is the thing that carries the message has more power than the message itself. So we've already said that the message of Christmas, um, everyone agrees, if you ask them what is the message of Christmas, usually the birth of Jesus somehow finds its way into their answer. So if the message is about the the light penetrating darkness, the birth of Jesus, uh, what is the medium that that message is carried by? Because what McLuhan was saying is that that medium actually has more power to form us than the message itself. So the paying attention to the medium of this season is super important because it's powerfully forming us. So, um, and when we prioritize paying attention to what this season is communicating to us, what we're really doing is we're staying awake to what's forming us and what's forming in us during this season. So we worship Jesus when we're awake to him. That's, that's I think, the most profound form of worship is to simply stay awake to Jesus. And stay, staying awake means being aware of his heart as we experience the things that are forming our heart around this season. So we don't have to go to war against the, you know, quote-unquote secularization of Christmas. If we simply stay awake to the things that we love about the season of Christmas, and then consider how those things that we love about this season intertwine into our worship, into our uh, Advent preparation to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And that means we pay attention both to the things that we love and the things that actually bother us about this season. There's a reason certain things bother you about this time of year, but do we stop long enough to pay attention why, to why that is, and do we put those things, both the things we love and the things we don't like, on the table in our uh, relationship with Jesus, to bounce these things off of Jesus so that we're present to what's going on in us during this season. So today's podcast, we'll uh, explore what it means to live wide awake during this season of Advent, so that the things that we love and the things we don't like both are contributing to a, a sort of a magnetic draw to the heart of Jesus during this time. So let's start off with um, kind of an umbrella category of music, entertainment, and the arts during this time. So there's so much about the Christmas season that is defined by the music we listen to and the entertainment that we watch and and the artistic expressions of this season. So uh, let me give you an example. Let's just start off with a, a song. We uh, I have like the largest collection of Christmas music on the face of the earth. I think I have more Christmas music than most people own music. It's just massive collection. I like really eclectic um, and I, I guess I would say non-experimental <laughs> Christmas music. Um, so I have a, a mother load of jazz-infused Christmas music. Starbucks used to put out a uh, Christmas album every year, and they, these were fantastic albums because they were compilation albums of really fantastic jazz-infused sort of Christmas music from the last 50 or 60 years. And so I have a, a, a ton of those, but 
every year I get some new Christmas music that interests me. I just got a new CD the other day that I have now loaded onto my computer, and I think I've listened to it five times now. And it is, it's called uh, a, swingin', a Swingin' Little Christmas. Um, I love it. It's got like 27 songs on it that are all sort of hip, swingin' jazz versions of Christmas songs. So I listen to a lot of Christmas music around this time. I, I just love the difference of it. And so I, the other day I was listening to one of these um, albums, and they had a version of the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer song. And um, you've probably grown up with that story for sure, the cartoon that we watch every year, but also the song that was made famous, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, sung by Burl Ives, I believe. Um, so that song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, has, has kind of planted deep in our consciousness. And the other day I was listening to the song again, and I realized, like midstream, a big light bulb went off over my head. I thought, hey, this song is definitely not a gospel song. <laughs> in fact, it's contrary to the gospel. Let me tell you what I mean. Here's some of the lyrics. You'll, you'll, uh, you'll pick up on this quickly. I think as I read these, you're going to hear the, the distinct voice of Burl Ives in your head. So, you know, Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They had a very shiny nose, and if you ever saw it, you would even say it glows. All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. They never let poor Rudolph join in any reindeer games. But then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? Then how the reindeer loved him, and they shouted out with glee, Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, you'll go down in history— and I'm listening to this song, I've heard it a million times, and I'm realizing um, I hate the message of that song, actually. <laughs> so here, here's what we have. We have a marginalized Rudolph, who's different from everyone else, and his difference is mocked and used as an excuse to exclude him from community. And I'm going all exegetical here on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger, can't believe it, but I'm, I'm doing it to make a point. Um, so here, here we have this marginalized character who's, who's punished, tortured even, for his difference that he had no control over, and he's not included, he's not celebrated, he, he's not befriended by anyone, um, until there, there appears to be a usefulness for his deformity. Once he, the usefulness of him is determined, then people celebrate him. Well, this is, of course, not at all... <laughs> The, the message of Jesus. I thought I'd contrast the message of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I bet this is the only podcast you've ever listened to that contrasted Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with Luke 19. Uh, in Luke 19, Jesus has an encounter with Zacchaeus. Let's just read that encounter. Jesus entered Jer Jericho and made his way through town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, not just a tax collector. He was the grand poobah of tax collectors, and he had become very rich. How did he become very rich? Because he was a criminal. <laughs> he stole from his own people as a representative of an occupying army. Not a good guy. Well, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. 
so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I'll give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. So in contrast to the message of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Jesus here sees a man who is equally marginalized and shunted aside because of um, his own reputation and, and, and how he's hurt the people that he was supposed to help. Uh, this man is a pariah, and the first thing Jesus does is he notices Zacchaeus and, and Zacchaeus' desire to see him, his desire to be close to him. And the first thing he does, he doesn't first address his obvious, the obvious reasons that he's a pariah. First he says, come on down, I must be a guest in your home today. Jesus first establishes the person's value and, and treasuredness before anything is addressed about his sin or about what makes him different. And if you think about the Rudolph story, uh, Rudolph, again, is only valuable when his the thing that, that excludes him from community is suddenly seen to be valuable. It's a performance-based system of acceptance that is represented by the Rudolph story. And Jesus is contrary to a performance-based system of acceptance. He accepts because he has grace. And when we are infected by his presence in his heart, um, we are motivated to move toward people before they conform or even seem to be valuable in our eyes. I think a lot about my daughter Lucy, who's 20 and at college right now, and the passion of her life is serving every summer at a ministry called Camp Barnabas. It's for special needs kids and adults, and maybe if you've been listening to the podcast a long time, you've actually heard Lucy on this podcast talking about Camp Barnabas. And I think Lucy is drawn to this environment because she's drawn to people who others often marginalize and don't see as equal enough to include a normal community. What she loves about Camp Barnabas is that this camp is determined to give these young people and adults um, the same kind of camp experience that um, able-bodied and able-minded kids have during the summer. So they go to great lengths to give these um, marginalized people an experience that they don't normally get because the rest of society is not set up to give them this experience. And I, I often think about Camp Barnabas's mission as, as very much reflecting the way Jesus moved in relationship, similar to how he moved in relationship here with Zacchaeus. He first said, let's do something normal, something that friends do, Zacchaeus. Let's do a friend thing first, then we'll talk about what you're doing. And then in the end, Jesus didn't even have to mention it. Zacchaeus was so overwhelmed with gratitude that he just fixed the problem on his own. He was going to make it right for all the people that he hurt. So why do I bring all this up about Rudolph and how it's different from the standard of 
of love, the standard of a redemptive story that Jesus sets. Well, you know, uh, in the middle of that room, listening to Rudolph and recognizing that it was not a Jesus narrative actually helped me to refocus on who Jesus is and what he's really all about. The fact that I didn't like how that story lives out, and I've always had some kind of unrest with that story, and I think this is why I don't like how the story turns. And to get in touch with why I don't like it and how Jesus is different and contrasting to that um, took me to a place of worship. I know that sounds funny, but the fact that I was bothered by the story of Rudolph eventually led me to um, honor and celebrate who Jesus is. And that's really what Advent is all about, is honoring and celebrating who Jesus is. The only way that would have happened is if I was actually paying attention to what I was hearing and considering the, the importance of what I was hearing and, and then bouncing that off of Jesus. And all of this happened in, you know, seconds, not, not minutes or hours. It happened in seconds. I just r- realized the truth about what I was listening to. But th- this is what it means to stay awake during Advent, to listen and pay attention to, to what, what is around you, even relative to Christmas music, um, and then consider um, how that either fits or doesn't fit the heart of Jesus. I know there's a movement right now um, around the country to ban the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Okay, there's a lot of um, radio stations and others that are banning this song from the, the 1950s, because in this Me Too era, it seems to be a song about a man not taking no for an answer. So personally, I think while there's truth to that statement, um, I think it's uh, overblown. It's, it's taking something that in the song is meant playfully and taking it intensely seriously, and I understand why it is, because of the times that we live in and because of the widespread abuse that we have seen. But uh, the fact that somebody is raising the issue means they're paying attention to what they're listening to, and I applaud that. I think it's a great thing to simply be awake to what we're hearing. In the, that, that means that you respect the medium of the message of this season. Well, what about movies? In the, under the umbrella of entertainment, um, movies are a, a huge part of, of the Christmas season, um, I know that in our family, we have uh, a number of Christmas movies that we love to watch, and we watch every year. Even though we know the story backwards and forwards, it's part of our family tradition to watch, I'd say, four or five movies every year that we really love. And I'd say our top favorite of all of those films that we watch every year is White Christmas. Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney... So we love watching White Christmas, and it's a story, it's a wartime, World War II uh, era story of two guys who meet each other um, uh, because they're in the same army battalion, and one of them is a famous entertainer and the other is not. And uh, they end up uh, partnering after the war is over, forming a a singing and dancing team that becomes hugely popular. And along the way, they meet a pair of sisters who um, are trying to break through in show business, and um, they end up uh, deciding to put on a show together um, and use their celebrity and use their power 
to help the general um, who they served under during the war because he's fallen on hard times, and they want to find a way to to um, get him uh, the the sort of uh, fulfilling position that he longs for, and they, they they just recognize he's down, and they want to pick pick him up. So they decide to put on a show and bring attention to to um, this general's needs. And along the way, there's a, an apparent betrayal in in their relationship, and one of the men and one of the women who are seem to be headed towards marriage, suddenly it all falls apart because the woman um, believes that the man has has incredibly betrayed her. And so the story hinges on this betrayal and what's going to happen, and will it be resolved? And uh, I, I just started thinking about, why does my family love this film so much? And that's really what I want to throw out to you. Well, in this film... The strong themes are about friendship, friendship through thick and thin, and having each other's back even when things are dicey, um, being able to count on the other person to come through. That's a strong theme. And the other theme in this film is redemption. Will this relationship be redeemed? And we have a hunger, such a strong hunger when we watch this film that this relationship should work, that this supposed betrayal would not shipwreck their relationship, and in the end, their love and their relationship is redeemed. And it's so deeply satisfying to watch films whose primary message is redemption, especially when redemption is hanging in the balance, where we don't know really whether it's going to happen or not. Now, you know with a Christmas movie... Um, uh, it's it's not like a David Mamet <laughs> film where the ending is a downer. Uh, a Christmas movie is designed to replay themes of redemption that we so much deeply love as followers of Jesus. So when I think about the, the music of White Christmas and the storyline of White Christmas, it's just obviously fantastic music, and it's a delightful movie. There's There's aspects of it that are really funny and aspects of it that are serious. But superseding all of that is this story of redemption and friendship that perseveres no matter what. It reminds me of Peter's relationship with Jesus. Um, Peter is the first one called to be a disciple. He is, um, along the way, always sort of surfaces and emerges as the leader of the disciples. He's a kind of a dominating figure. Part of that is just because of how he's wired. He he owns his own fishing business in a time of history when most people were slaves. So he obviously had some chutzpah and some perseverance and some courage, um, enough to to make his business work at a time when most people couldn't. So Peter emerges as a as a as a leader person, and he is the first person that Jesus invites into his small inner circle. And you know, we get more information about Peter's relationship with Jesus than really any other disciple. We get uh, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the questions Pete, Peter asks, um, and we get a lot of bravado, of course, from Peter, who, who is so captured by Jesus that he uh, vows to him over and over again that no matter what, what, whatever else happens, he's going to go down fighting. He will have Jesus' back, no matter what. And of course, when, when Peter betrays Jesus, 
Um, it's a deep betrayal. It's also a betrayal of his own identity. Peter saw himself as the sort of guy who would die for his friends, and certainly he would die for the Messiah. And in the end, he, he can't, he won't. And he betrays Jesus um, in, in the most ugly way. And what happens then? We're left hanging. What is going to happen in this relationship? Can it be restored? Uh, and then, of course, uh, post-resurrection, Jesus calls out to Peter and his friends as they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee, tells them to come to shore so that they can have breakfast together, and Peter thrash, jumps over the side of the ship and thrashes his way to the shore, and, and he's the first one there to greet Jesus. They have breakfast together, and after that breakfast, that's when Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And, and does it repeatedly because he's trying to agitate Peter into a sense of experiencing the pain of his betrayal all over again. And that, that's the scene that, that plays out on the shore there. So Jesus, in the end, um, masterfully reconnects and redeems his relationship with Peter on that shore. And that, that is the launching pad Peter needs to go and plant the church in the world. So there I've retold the, uh, the story of Peter and Jesus, and you could overlay that story onto the narrative of White Christmas. <laughs> I know it sounds funny, but these themes that are in White Christmas are the same themes we, that go so deep in us in this story of redemption that is between Peter and Jesus. And Peter's story of redemption is really our story of redemption. All of us have betrayed Jesus in one way or another. Some of us are betraying him right now. So what hangs in the balance? Will we be invited back in? Will this relationship that has so much promise be restored? Well, we love it when we watch White Christmas and see that restored relationship, and it can remind us of the macro story in our life, that Jesus is moving toward us right now, against all odds, in the face of our betrayal, to call us back into relationship. Um, if you're... If, if you watch a film like White Christmas and ask yourself, why do I love this so much? Um, just asking that question alone will take you down a path that can lead to worship. So um, what about TV specials? Like uh, every year, one of the TV specials that our family loves to watch is A Charlie Brown Christmas. Another, another popular cultural icon that has a kind of a mean streak in the middle of it. I mentioned that about Rudolph, but the Charlie Brown story, wow, talk about somebody who's abused <laughs> by his peers. Charlie Brown is the Charlie Browniest of them. Um, so, and uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas is no different than the other entries. Charlie Brown is always diminished, dismissed, and, le and treated as an outsider, not an insider. And that is the story of this little animated special. Um, but I love it. And I think I love it more than any of the other Charlie Brown Peanuts specials. And part of it is because at the center of this story is a big question, which is a question that Charlie Brown asks in the midst of his pain and agony around the season. He, he essentially says in the very first part of, of, of this 30-minute animated special that he doesn't get why people love Christmas so much, because Christmas just represents pain to him. 
And the whole show then sets out to answer Charlie Brown's question, what is Christmas really all about? And along the way, Charlie discovers what Christmas is all about. It's about grace. He goes out and gets a—he's supposed to go get a Christmas tree for um, the the theater troupe that's going to put on a Christmas story play, and he's supposed to be the director of it. And they get all frustrated with Charlie and tell him to go out and just get a tree. They need a tree for their play, and he comes back with an ugly little tree, a, the kind of tree nobody would pick in the in the tree lot, and he's abused and ridiculed for it. Um, but Charlie Brown walks away discouraged, you know, thinking, um, I thought I was getting close to what the meaning of Christmas is all about, but this is just more pain. And in the end, um, the rest of the group comes across his little tree and uh, gives it some love, decorates it, and it turns out to be a fantastic little tree. And Charlie it, uh, comes walking up and sees his tree decorated and loved, and something in him is released. There's a, a moment there of grace, of the ugly thing being turned into a beautiful thing. And the tree, really, in, in a Charlie Brown Christmas is Charlie Brown. <laughs> it's an ugly little thing nobody would want. And yet, when it receives the, the, the love of grace, it's turned into something beautiful. And that is Charlie himself. So uh, deep inside of this show is embedded the gospel message itself. Um, you know, in Luke chapter 7, powerful story of Jesus being anointed by a, a sinful woman. Think about the, the themes here that I was just talking about, ugly into beauty, um, and, and how they're suggested by the story of a Charlie Brown Christmas. So here is the story of Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told them this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of, of silver to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Now, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. So he's turned to the woman, he's looking at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she's anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and there are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little only shows a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men sitting at the table said amongst themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here is a story of an outsider, 
a woman who's treated as ugly and outside of acceptable society, breaking through into that acceptable society, risking the vicious things that people will say about her to simply and profoundly and passionately honor Jesus. And Jesus sees past the ugly. Ugly isn't even a category for him when he looks at this woman. All he sees is beauty. And here the outsider is invited into and, and, and framed as the ultimate insider. Jesus makes sure that this woman's story is told throughout the ages. She is an outsider who's now an insider. And this is the momentum of Jesus in our life. Um, in the areas, in the, in, the, in, the, in the wounding that you have that speaks the narrative in your life that says you're an outsider, Jesus's love is always moving you toward being an insider. He's taking what is ugly and making it beautiful. He's taking your marginalization and inviting you inside the gates. He's moving you from broken human being to a member of God's family. The ultimate insider gift is to be invited in, adopted into God's own family. And that is the message of Christmas in the end. It's God coming um, in the incarnation to live through the live as a human being, but fully man, fully God, so that we can be invited into his family and experience the intimacy of, of that family. This is what the woman in Luke 7, this is the invitation she receives, and in the end, this is what Charlie Brown feels at the end of a Charlie Brown Christmas. For the first time in his life, he feels like he's an insider, not an outsider. If we slow down and pay attention to why we love this story, we discover um, that it's connected to the great story, um, the, the truth about how Jesus moves in relationship with us. So what about um, Christmas carols that we love at Christmas time? That's part of the medium of the message. We're surrounded by Christmas carols. We don't really sing a lot of these songs at any other time of the year. Uh, do you have a favorite Christmas carol? Um, that's a good question to ask. What's your favorite Christmas carol? And then ask yourself, why? Why is that my favorite Christmas carol? Well, my, my favorite Christmas carol is, O Come All Ye Faithful. I love singing this song. And when I ask myself, why do I love this song? I think it's because a combination of the, the, the music crescendo that is in this song and it, the crescendo emerges into the lyrical portion of the song where uh, we, are, we are singing, O come, let us adore him. I think the reason I love this song so much is that that line is repeated three times in the song. And each time when it's sung, the, the line becomes more fervent. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. You see the, the progression of, of fervency in the refrain? I think that's, that this is why I love this song so much, because in a season of busyness and marginless living and um, guilt and stress, when I'm singing this song, I'm brought back to the simple, childlike truth of my relationship with Jesus, the opportunity to successively... Um, speak out in a fervent way my adoration of him. So this song sets me up to do what my heart longs the most to do, which is to 
truly tell Jesus how much he means to me. So what's your favorite Christmas carol? And have you ever thought about why it's your favorite? It's a good thing to ask yourself, why do I love that song so much? What is it about that song that connects to a truth about the kingdom of God or moves me toward a a place of worship with Jesus? What is it about that song? So ask yourself, why? That's living awake during Advent. Let's think about gift-giving for a minute. That's a dominant thing that happens during the Christmas season. It's kind of like its own thing. I mean, Black Friday and and Cyber Monday and Small Business Saturday, all of these things are designed to help fuel uh, the defining characteristic of the Christmas season, which is buying things and giving them to other people. So uh, the the lens, though, of gift-giving, if you, you might notice this in yourself, you're so busy shopping and thinking about sales and deals and things like that, that very subtly you can just start thinking about what you want, <laughs> and even buying stuff that you want. This happens to me a lot, uh, because I'm in this buying mode when I'm, not, when I'm not normally a buyer. I actually start to think about things that I want, too, and... and uh, um, we can easily shift the focus away from others onto ourselves during this time. But the mindset, I think, the, the mindset of gift-giving um, and how it relates to the season of Advent is, a, is something important to understand and embrace. The mindset of gift-giving is really, I think, to see the people in your life well and to uncover the mystery of their beauty. To see the people in your life well and to uncover the mystery of their beauty. Gift-giving can do that, because you're, you're trying to pay attention to the nuances of a person, to what their heart would be made joyful about, to that, that thing that could surprise them that they maybe didn't even know that they wanted, but as soon as they see it, they're delighted by it. We, you know, One of the things that is sort of the pinnacle of gift-giving at Christmas is when you give someone something that they never asked for, didn't know they wanted, and it becomes their favorite thing. That's like the Super Bowl of gift-giving. Well, why? Why do we love that so much? It's because the desire to see people well and be seen well is so powerful in our life. Um, in Matthew chapter 9, we get this um, story of the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Let me just read that again to remind ourselves of what happened here in this story. Um, so Jesus was speaking to his disciples about John the Baptist, and, um, and as he was talking, the leader of the synagogue came and knelt before him. So here's a man very much used to being honored and being at the place of honor, and instead he comes to Jesus and kneels before him, and he says, my daughter's just died, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. Just then, a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding came up from behind him. She touched the fringe of his robe, for she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Well, Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed in that moment. So here we have this woman who's trying not to be seen. (laughs) She's trying not to be considered Um, She just wants to sneak in and sneak out, and Jesus stops, recognizes who she is, recognizes why she's doing what she's doing, and and blesses her, heals her. But first what he does 
is he says, I see you. You have not gone unnoticed. Maybe think about this story when you're thinking about giving gifts to the people you care about most in your life. Think about this woman and how Jesus slowed down, stopped, paid attention to her, and said, I see you, and let me prove to you that I see you. You're healed right now, but more than that, you're accepted into the community of quote-unquote normal people. You have been marginalized because of the malady that you've been dealing with. I want to publicly invite you into relationship so that now you're accepted within the community. He, he sees her, and then he redeems her and gives her what she most needs in seeing her. So if we think about gift-giving as a way to see the people in our life um, better than maybe we do on an everyday basis, and to mark that by getting them a gift that really does reflect what is true and good and beautiful about them, it's a powerful thing. What about decorating? Um, decorating is also uh, the medium of the message in, during the Christmas season. I know that I have... Um, I don't normally put icicle lights on, along the roof line of my entire house. I don't normally risk my life every year to climb around on the roof and get these icicle lights up there, and I don't normally, with frozen fingers, pluck out the dead bulbs and put in live bulbs so that my dang lights will work. I don't go ever to this sense of effort, and when you're in the midst of it, it seems like, why do we do this every year? But then when it's done, wow. There's a sense of wonder about the decorations that we that we uh, use out during the holiday time. They they create wonder. The lights, the smells, the colors, and I'm just reminded that Jesus said, you know, you can't enter into the kingdom of God unless you become like a little child. And the decorations that we use at Christmas time, I think, take us back to a sense of childhood wonder. The, 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 these decorations give us this sense that something magical is in the air, and that is a very, very good thing. It is a, a great framework for worship. Um, I always think about how C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist and uh, thinker and philosopher and theologian, um, how C.S. Lewis came to Christ through the most unusual means. He came to Christ through the portal of wonder and, and beauty, meaning uh, C.S. Lewis loved fantasy stories, and the magic of them, the wonder of these fantasy stories, prepared his heart to hunger after Jesus as he was introduced to him, finally, that he found in Jesus the same magic and wonder that he had learned to love through his love of fantasy. So uh, his love of fantasy uh, kind of carved out a place of wonder in C.S. Lewis, and I think that's what uh, the decorations that we use at Christmas time can also do, not only for the kids in our life, but for ourselves. They can carve out a place, uh, a receptacle even, for wonder in our life that then can translate into our worship of Jesus. You know, on the other side of the coin, I have a friend who um, was married for a long time to an e a very prominent evangelical leader in the church, and when that man very publicly slowly died from cancer, um, in her grief, in the, in the months and years after his death, our, our friend decided to leave the evangelical church and join the Catholic Church. A, a shocking thing for someone who was so high profile in the evangelical world, and I ran across her one day and I asked her, what made you decide to 
to join the Catholic Church, and she said, I had a hard time living out my grief in the evangelical world because everybody thinks there's an answer for everything. And in, the, in, the, in my Catholic experience, they gave place for mystery, and that's what I most needed for my grief. And I thought that was profound. We all hunger for a place of mystery and wonder in our life, and guess what? The decorations you use in your house can create space for that. Let's talk about two last things before we wrap up here. Uh, one is about food. The foods at Christmas, wow, food is a major part of our Christmas experience, right? So in my case, uh, Christmas cookies are a big deal. My mom is a great baker and a great cook, and when I was young, from the earliest time I can remember, we had a tradition of decorating gingerbread cookies and white cookies and then an array of, of hand-pressed cookies that my mom made. And uh, it took probably two or three hours with all three of us kids decorating these cookies and just have these fond memories of snow falling lightly outside while we're decorating these cookies and then enjoying how delicious they were. But when my parents separated when I was in sixth grade and my dad was living um, 30 minutes away in a small apartment and my mom, I didn't know this at the time, but my mom was slowly deconstructing under the pressure of a broken marriage and contemplating suicide, it was the darkest time of my life. And it was maybe the longest year of my life as well. But I remember my parents' separation bridging over Christmas, and that being so painful to think about my broken family living over Christmas. But I remember the, the most redemptive thing that happened during that time was that my mom decided to not forego the baking of and decorating the cookies, but to do it. And I remember sitting there with my sisters decorating those cookies, feeling like this tradition, this thing that I was that was so beloved and something that we did every year was the 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 lifeline I needed to continue to hope and to hang on to that hope. So this tradition, this food related tradition, they 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 can actually bridge us back to a place of hope because they, they stir up hope in us, stir up hope and delight in us, that hope and delight can extend into the rest of our life where we really need that hope and delight. So food really uh, is the same thing as an experience. It's, uh, food is an experience. That's why it's embedded in the culture Jesus grew up in as well. The Last Supper was not the last conversation. <laughs> it was the Last Supper. It was focused on a meal. We are created to enjoy food, the process of taking something from outside our body, inside our body, and ingesting it. It's really the same invitation Jesus gives to us in John chapter 6, when he says nine times in a row, if you want any part of me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. So during this Christmas season, as you enjoy these special foods and traditions of food that you have, as you do, let them remind you of what Jesus said in John 6 that this act that you're doing, this act of delight in eating these foods, is the same act of delight I'm inviting you into as I invite you to eat and drink me. Be delighted in me. Consume me. Take me inside yourself and relish the taste of me. The last thing is family traditions. Um, and, you know, that's kind of a catch-all category because families have lots of different traditions, but every family that I know creates some family rhythms that undergird the things that are really important to their family. One of ours is uh, 
we have many, but one of ours is on Christmas Eve, um, we go to church, and then we come back, and we turn off all the lights in our house, and we only use candlelight. We pull out all the candles. We, can, we, ha- we usually have candles going in our house anyway, but we pull out a bunch of them, and we light them all, and we turn off all the lights in our house, and we eat a special winter salad, and we have two or three different choices of soup, and we eat crackers and really great cheese and a glass of wine, and oh, just thinking about it right now, I just feel so warm inside. Well, the setting is dim, the lighting is warm, we give ourselves time. That, that meal usually takes an hour, hour and a half. We just slow down, try to savor the food and savor each other. I love that rhythm. It also undergirds something very important for our girls, which is we, we value close, intimate times of relationship and savoring the food and savoring each other and the quiet. To, we, we value quiet, not just the noise. So that tradition actually undergirds things that are important also in the kingdom of God. So the role of traditions is to create memories and connections to the things that make your family distinct, that make your family what it is, that connect you to the, your, what your family honors. So th- these traditions create an identity around your family story. So where is Jesus in your family story? When you think about the traditions you love, ask yourself, how did those things lead me to embrace and celebrate the truths of the kingdom of God and the truth about the heart of Jesus? How did those things draw me into that more deeply? Um, as you consider that question, you can enter into those traditions with greater passion. So to wrap up here, here's a few things to think about, simple things to think about out of all this. Notice what you notice this season. The things that you love, the things you don't, pay attention to those things. Stop long enough to consider, why do I love that? Why do I not like that? And then simply ask Jesus, what do I love and why do I love it? What do I not love and why do I not love it? These are on-ramps into Advent, Advent which prepares our hearts to celebrate the beauty of Jesus. So ask yourself, why do I love it? Why do I not love it, and why? And use that question as an on-ramp into worship. Um, the next thing is feed the things you love, and keep asking. Keep, keep hold of the things that you love. Hold on to those things, and keep asking, why do I love those things? And on the other side, cut out the things you don't love. Understand why you, you don't resonate with something it will also lead you back to Jesus if you pay attention long enough. The idea here is to be awake, not asleep, to the the medium of the message of the Christmas season. And in this way, the Christmas season, even as secular as it is, is, can be the on-ramp for you into your Advent celebration, your Advent preparation. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Just looking for our podcast section in Season 3, Episode 50. And don't forget, we have a special Advent devotional experience for you that Adam will put, on, put as a link on that site. So if you want to have a very simple but profound journey through Advent, we have a resource for you that um, is linked on our site. So please check that out. Don't forget about the Jesus-Centered Bible if you're looking for a gift possibility, or even the Jesus-Centered Life or its companion devotion, the Jesus-Centered Life devotions for teenagers. All of these are fantastic 
ways to express to people, I see you and I see what you love, and I want to introduce you to the one that I love. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from LifeTree. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.